Well, we're going to talk this morning about pressure. We're going to talk about the pressure that we experience in the world, the, the pressure that we experience in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our communities and in our workplaces. We're going to talk about the pressure we face as Christians, how we're walking not to be like this world, but to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and the pressure it is to not conform, the pressure it is to not fall into that rut, to not fall into that path, but instead to walk the narrow path with Jesus. A narrow path that is kind of like that sometimes, right? It's not only a slippery slope, it's a flat out cliff on one side into the abyss. And what I love about this is you've got these little finger holds here into what? Into the rock, right? The rock that is Jesus. We walk a narrow path, but not alone, right? Jesus walks with us. But sometimes we're just having to cling to the rock that is Christ. We need to have him be our steady hand in these different times. But there's pressure there's pressure that comes at us, and sometimes the pressure can feel really, really intense. Sometimes the pressure kind of feels like it can close in around us, and it can feel like we're being hard-pressed, even crushed. Standing for Jesus is, is pressure sometimes. Standing for truth is pressure sometimes. It's, it's not going to mean you're going to be liked by everyone. Not everyone is going to speak well of you. It's, it's kind of one of those messages this morning, but it's because that's where the text is at. We're going to see the pressure is going to ramp up for the church again. We've had some reprieve in the persecution of, as we've been following the narrative of the Acts church. Ever since Saul gets saved in Acts chapter 9, comes to know Jesus as Lord, puts his faith, and becomes a follower of Jesus, that pressure seems to subside. The, that persecution that Saul was really leading kind of stops, and there's some reprieve for a time. But it's going to get ramped back up here this morning. And I just I want us to think about that pressure, the pressure from the outside that just seems like it encloses all around you. Several hundred miles off the coast of Guam is the Mariana Trench. And it's the deepest place in the ocean. It's nearly seven miles deep. And I want you to think about it. It is deeper. The deepest part of the ocean is deeper than the tallest part of the earth, which is Everest, right? It's deeper. It's, it's crazy to think about how deep the Mariana Trench is. Listen to this. The water pressure at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is calculated at 15,931 pounds per square inch. Can you fathom that? I mean, I can't even fathom that much pressure, 15,931 pounds per square inch, right? That's crazy. And, and just this last week, maybe you saw the article, there was another submarine, manned submarine that went down to the depths just this past week. And it was the third time somebody was, was courageous enough to jump into a submarine and then go down to those depths. But what they found is, is under that incredible, unfathomable pressure, when they turn the lights on the submarine, they see that there's fish down there. There's life that is able to live under that incredible pressure. And, and that baffles them. And at first they're thinking, well, how can that be? And they thought, well, those fish must be like our submarine and have incredibly thick exterior. They, they must be so rigid in order to endure such outside pressure. And that's how we can think sometimes. We think, oh, there's all this pressure around me. So what I need to do is I need to be thick. I need to wall up my heart. I need to put a shell around me of protection so nothing can penetrate me. But that's not what they found was the, the external makeup of these fish. 
In fact, they were really soft on the outside, supple, flexible. And they well, how can this be? And it was because God has created these fish, most of them without air pockets inside their bodies that can expand under that amount of pressure. God has created them to be able to live down at the depths under the darkness and the pressure. We say, well, how? Because the pressure on the inside of these fish matches the pressure on the outside that is coming down upon them. And that's, the, that's what I want us to get. If, if I could sum up the entire message in one sentence, it's this. The amount of pressure on the outside doesn't matter if it matches the amount of pressure found on the inside. Right? And that's the application we're going to see for every single one of us as Christians and for the church Because when the intensity of the pressure increases, as God calls us deeper into a relationship with him, to walk more faithful with him on the day-to-day things, and the pressure increases, so too it must increase on the inside. Because again, if it matches, if the pressure on the inside equals the amount of pressure on the inside, on the outside, it doesn't matter, right? And that's what I want us to know. It's not about having thick skin, It's not about putting a shell around our hearts saying, I'm going to be impenetrable, right? Sometimes we hear that, oh, to be a Christian, you you better have some thick skin. Listen, Jesus didn't have thick skin. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and he's in the garden, you know how thin his skin was? Thin enough to sweat drops of blood, right? Jesus didn't have thick skin, but what did he have? A well-worn path to the throne of grace. He sought often his father in heaven for the strength and supply of the spirit in order to walk out this life. But it's increasing the pressure on the inside. So we want to know, how do we do that? How can we emulate Christ? Well, we're going to see some answers to that question here in the text before us tonight. Because we're going to see, I said tonight, didn't I? This morning. Because we're going to see this pressure. You can come back tonight if you're interested. We'll talk about it again. I love to talk about this stuff. But we're going to see this pressure get turned up here in Acts chapter 11. Now, picking up where we left off, we're verse 27. So let's see where we left off last week. Chapter eleven twenty seven says, And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So catching up with where we're at, Luke says, and in these days, and we Bible students, we want to say in what days? And, and we remember from our study last week, in the days that the church is growing in Antioch, in the days when Saul and Barnabas are teaching the church in Antioch. In these days, a trial comes upon the church, and we're seeing the pressure starting to build from the outside, a trial in the form of a great famine. Now, throughout our study of the book of Acts, we haven't seen a trial like this before, right? This is the first time a famine has come upon the church, at least as it's been recorded through the narrative of the book of Acts. And it's going to be very challenging. A man named Josephus, a Jewish historian who's not a Christian, but was recording recorded history during this time, he tells us about this famine. In his book, Antiquities, he talks about a famine that occurred and overtook many within Judea. Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. Judea seemed to be the hardest hit during this area, during this famine. And Josephus tells us that many people starved as a result of the scarcity of food during this time. So it's going to be an intense famine, a trial in the form of a famine. 
And God is bringing this news to the church in Antioch before it's going to happen. He's forewarning his church. That's what God does, right? He, he gives us his word to forewarn us of events that are going to come, right? That's, he's faithful to do that. Now, here in the, the book of Acts, where the New Testament hadn't yet been written and recorded yet, right? They're living it out real time. God sends it through the mouth of a prophet named Agabus. Now, we're, we're going to see Agabus later in chapter, chapter 21 of the book of Acts. So this isn't the first time we see him. Well, it's the first time we see him. It's not the last time we see him. But we know that he's a disciple of Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been given the spiritual gift of prophecy, which means he's able to speak a word for the Lord under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what it means to have the gift of prophecy. And this is a gift that's given to the church in, in Acts. It's a gift that's given to the church here. Right? We remember back from Acts chapter 2, the prophecy of Joel being fulfilled. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy when the Spirit of God is poured out upon them. So he's prophesying. He's speaking a word under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes prophecy is in the form of forth-telling, just speaking the word of God for the situation. This is what God's word has said, and the Spirit of God brings recollection to it and saying, hey, here's what God's word has said, and this is what's applicable here. But other times it's foretelling. It's speaking about a future event. It's speaking the future will of God, what is going to happen. And that's what Agabus is doing here. God has given him maybe a vision or a word, but it's a prophecy about future events. This famine is going to come, and it does come. We know from Josephus and, and several other historians writing during this time, this this, this famine did come under the days of Claudius Caesar, and it, it does affect a lot of people. So that's kind of that trial that's the, the backstage or the backdrop of what's going on here. But I want us to be comfortable with this, that this is, this is a spiritual gift, and, and this is something that God does use. However, we need to know that it happens, this prophecy gets fulfilled exactly as Agabus said it would, right? This famine happens in the days of Claudius Caesar, Right? If it happens under the days of Nero, he's not a false prophet. Right? If somebody's going to say, here's a prophecy from the Lord, thus says the Lord for you, and he gives you the specifics, and it kind of, sort of, maybe if you squeeze some things together and omit the other things, maybe it works. Listen, that is not what we're talking about here. Right? When a prophet speaks as unto the Lord, this is what the Lord God says. It happens exactly the way God spoke. It was going to happen. Not a single word from the Lord will ever fail to come to pass. If it's really from the Lord, God is never wrong. He never misspeaks. God isn't wearing a blindfold, throwing darts, going, hey, this might work out. It might not. That is not how the king of the universe works. Right? When he speaks, it happens. And that's how we can discern whether or not someone is a prophet of the Lord or not. It had better come to pass. It had better come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, they're not a prophet. They're called a false prophet, and we should not fear them. We should not listen to them. Listen, even if somebody has been right before and is wrong one time, they're a false prophet. I, I put verses in your study guide to be able to see this, and it's important to make this point because Jesus says many false prophets will come, and many have, and many are still yet to come. And we want to be wise about this. Jesus is telling us we're not going to be able to tell from the outside. They're going to look, they're going to look like sheep's clothing. They're going to be wearing sheep's clothing, but inside they're ravenous wolves. And we're going to be able to tell them by their fruit, by what they say, if it actually happens, if it's consistent with the word of God. So just note all that. It's important. But Agabus here, he's a true prophet. And he gets a word from the Lord and he tells them food is going to be scarce. There's going to be a serious trial. The pressure is going to get turned up. And what does that give the church the opportunity to do? 
match the pressure on the inside to that on the outside. Right? The church is going to receive this prophetic word from the Lord and they're going to act on it. They're going to hear the word of God and they're going to believe it and move on. How are they going to move? We're going to see in verse 28 that the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Each one of them, they're going to say, well, what can I do? What can I give to be able to offset through my generosity the scarcity that's going to happen in Judea? The church is going to be the church. One of the ways we turn up the pressure on the inside is we start getting others focused, right? We start seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, loving Jesus first, and then our neighbors second. You start taking the focus off of yourself. You start being the church. And when you start seeing needs and saying, well, well, God, what can I do? Let me be made available to help serve you in whatever capacity that may be. And that's what happens. That's what they're going to do. They're going to bear one another's burdens, they're going to try to come to this aid. Now, this verse, this section shows us two very important things. Remember, this is the church in Antioch made vastly of Jewish, I'm sorry, Gentile converts to Christianity. Those Gentile people have come to know Jesus as Lord, right? And, and where's Jerusalem? What's going on there? That's the primarily Jewish church, the Jewish converts to Christianity who've started to follow Jesus and put their faith in him. Right, but now we're seeing we've got Gentiles and, and the Jewish people, but there is love between them both, and the Gentile people are going to come to the aid of their Jewish brethren because they're all one in Christ now. They're not looking at them saying, oh, we can't keep company anymore. Oh, we can't eat anymore. They're saying, you know what? Jesus tore the veil. Jesus broke all that down. We're going to come to your aid because we are brothers and sisters in Christ now. So we're seeing that. That's a very important point that we see. They don't bail on them. They come to their aid. But number two, I see this as they each give according to their own ability. This is New Testament giving all wrapped up right here in verse 28. It says each one according to their own ability. And I love that. You don't see a percentage here. You don't see that the law required it here. You see that the Spirit of God moves upon their heart. They have compassion for those in need. When one part of the body hurts, the other part of the body experiences it, and we want to come together as a body. But this is New Testament giving. I get asked sometimes, well, hey, I, I know that I should give, right? I should tithe. How do I do that? And, and tithe, we know, means 10%. And it's an Old Testament principle, 10%. And so they say, well, someone will say, what do I do? Do I give 10% of gross or do I give 10% of net? And then what if I get a bonus? Do I get 10% of that? What about my tax returns? Do I give 10% of that? And I say, listen, Christians, be free. All right, be free. Give each according to your own ability. Right, it's not a law that anyone is putting on you. It's not a percentage that anybody is putting on you. Give according to your own ability. Pray, ask God, what do you want me to give? But I want you to notice everybody gives something, each one according to their ability. Because whatever you give, if you give it as a heart of worship, God can and he will use it. He does. But it's an act of worship saying, God, you've given me so much. You've blessed me with so much. I just want to give a portion back to you because I love you and I'm thankful. And I don't worship the treasure. I worship the Lord God who's given me the treasure. And that's what they do. So each one according to their own ability. A great New Testament principle. Here's, here's a great example of giving. But they're going to supply the need for the church in Jerusalem. They're going to send it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I love these servant leaders being willing to go deliver this love offering. But this trial comes in the form of a famine. It kind of sets the tone for what's going on. Now, while all that's going on, chapter 12, verse 1 says... 
Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So Luke says, while all this famine is going on during this time, the pressure gets turned up even more. King Herod decides it's time to harass the church. Do you think Herod just came up with that idea? Or do you think that that idea was put into his head by the prince of the power of the air, the one who has only come to steal, kill, and destroy? Right, Herod, you're being an instrument of the enemy to oppress, afflict, harm, mistreat, persecute, and even murder Christians, those of the church. And we're seeing another wave of persecution launched against the church. Now, who is this Herod? This name is somewhat familiar to us. We've seen a couple Herods in our Bible study through Matthew. But if you're familiar with the Herod family tree, you know it's pretty complicated. If you want to track it out, put blueletterbible.com Herod family tree. And you can kind of break that down on your own and try and wrap your mind around it. I couldn't. And even if I could, I couldn't pack it into a two-minute statement here. So I'm just going to make it quick. This is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2 who, trying to kill Jesus, ordered all the babies under two years old to be murdered. Right? That was Herod the Great. Herod Agrippa here is his grandson. Now, he's the nephew of Herod Antipas, and he's the Herod who has John the Baptist beheaded. So that's just enough. I mean, you can follow the train wreck of a family line that is the Herod's. But it gets the point across, it's pretty tough family history, and they have a a history of persecuting the church, trying to thwart God's plan, being used by the enemy to try and get in front of the plans of God. And it's been historically a failure because you can't stop the plans of God. But Herod is trying to afflict, harass the church. He's turning up the pressure, and we're not told the specifics of what happens, but somehow Herod gets to James. James, one of the 12 apostles, one of the foundational stones, his name is going to be on those gates in the new Jerusalem. This is James. James as in Peter, James and John. One of those disciples that was able to get a little closer, more privileged to experience some of the things than the rest of the disciples had. He was there to go into the house of Jairus when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter up after she had died. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus shows a little bit of his glory and has the conversation with Moses and Elijah. This is James, one of the sons of thunder. And we get the idea that he's he's been killed quickly. He gets arrested and he gets killed and it happens rather quickly. A trial comes upon him and then it gets played out very, very quickly. The church would have heard that there's no delay. James was arrested and killed in the same statement. And James here, he's, he's with the Lord. That, that piece of glory, that shrouding glory that he saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, he's seeing it in fullness as he's with Jesus forever. He's finished his race. He stood under pressure and kept the faith. But as quickly as all this has taken place, I want us to try and feel the weight of this. This is a huge blow to the church. Anytime, even when Stephen was martyred back in Acts chapter 7, anytime a Christian dies for their faith, it ramps up the pressure to the boiling point, right? Because it makes it very, very real. 
wow, people are dying for their faith in Jesus. People are really having to love their lives to, not to the death, loving Jesus, the word of their testimony, clinging to the blood of the lamb. They're really having to do that. And it puts that perspective into each one. Am I willing to live for Jesus if it means physical death? Do I really believe he's able to keep what I've entrusted to him until that day? That's what's happening. It's ramped up to the point that is on level or even above so back in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was martyred for his faith. Now, while all that is happening, verse 3 tells us that Herod sees a bump in his popularity, right? The popular vote of the world says, oh, we love that. We love that you just killed a Christian, Herod. And so he says, oh, well, you think you like that one? I'm going to go arrest Peter and let's see how much my popularity is going to jump now. That's what he's thinking. That's what he does. He goes and arrests Peter. And Peter's been the leader of the church. He's been the the main figurehead here in this point as he's leading people to Jesus and he's preaching the gospel and he's going throughout the region. But Herod would have liked to have him arrested and killed just as quickly as James was. But now it's in the days of unleavened bread. Now, Passover happens, then the days of unleavened bread. So there's this great celebration, a great Jewish feast. One of those, they would remember the deliverance of of God for his people out of Egypt. So Herod is thinking, well, I don't want to mess that up. I got a good popularity thing going there. They're stoked that I took care of James. So if I just wait a little bit, I'm not going to upset the car. I'm going to ride this wave of popularity. So he waits. But I want you to see he intends on bringing Peter out in front of the people and having him killed the same way he had James killed. That's the intents. That's the motives here. And we can see that he's not taking any chances. Herod's maybe heard of Peter's deliverance from prison before. So verse four says he puts him under the charge of four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers to watch over Peter. Peter's going to have each one of his arms chained to a Roman soldier. He's going to have other Roman soldiers by the doorpost, by the gate. There's all these people to prevent a, an escape, to be unaware of a prison escape here. Herod is, does not want that to happen. And that's some foreshadowing of how awesome the Lord God is. But the pressure has reached its boiling point here. And you think about the church. They've heard James was arrested. They've heard he's killed. Now they're waiting for the same news upon Peter. They know he's arrested. When is he going to be killed? But I want to see what does the church do? The pressure, please see that the pressure is turned up on the outside to a place that it's never been before. It's intense. And what are they going to do? They have to turn up the pressure on the inside. They've got to meet this or they're going to be flattened out, hard pressed and crushed. I change a lot of bike tires in my house. My kids love to ride their bikes in the dirt, and I would have it no other way. Ride those bikes in the dirt. But there's these things called goat heads. Lisa, we call them. Maybe they're just thorns out here. But they put holes in the tires, and sometimes even the slime tires. So I'm just like a NASCAR pit crew member, and I'm changing bike tubes all the time. But what I do is you change the bike tube, you pump it up, right? And you put it back in the, in the frame of the bike. And you can look at the tire, and it looks full, right? It's got the good shape. But then you put pressure on it. What happens? You can tell if you apply too much pressure on the outside, then there is on the inside. You flatten out that tire. Nobody likes to ride with a flat tire. So what do you got to do? You got to fill up the air on the inside. Why? So it doesn't get affected by the pressure on the outside. And that's exactly what the church has to do here. Herod is wanting to flatten them out. Herod wants to slow them down. Herod is trying to punch a hole in their bike tire, right? So they can't go anywhere. 
And what is the church going to have to do? They have to respond by turning the pressure up the inside. What does that look like? Verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. What does the church start doing? They start praying. How much prayer is being offered? It says constant prayer. As in steadfast, earnest prayer was offered to God for Peter on Peter's behalf. They didn't show up and just pray once. They didn't just make quick mention of Peter in their prayers. The whole church broke away from their programmed Christianity and made prayer their sole pursuit, asking the Lord to do what only he can do. Asking the Lord to to deliver Peter. Asking the Lord to reach out his righteous right hand from heaven. They're continuing to pray without ceasing as they stretch out their arms like a child stretches out his arms for their mother or father. Right? Standing on the tippiest of tippy toes saying, God, we need you. God, you have to intervene or we're not going to be able to survive. God, you've got to fill us up with your Holy Spirit. We need you to have your sufficient grace cover us because we are so weak and this might be enough to just shatter us. God, we need you to turn the pressure up on the inside. The amount of pressure on the outside isn't a problem if it equals the pressure on the inside. He that lives in us, Christians, is greater than he that lives in the world. And so we have to engage in this. I, I, I Please, 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 please do not miss this part. What we're really seeing here in Acts chapter 12 is we're seeing how the battle gets waged in this world. We're seeing both sides weapons. We're seeing how it all gets played out. On one side, we have the world wielding all of its power, everything the world can offer. They have the sword. They can kill the body. They can't kill the soul, right? Jesus says, don't fear him who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell, Jesus says. But the world, all they can do is they can take the sword out and they can take our physical body. They can do that. The world has the power to do that. And they've done that with James. They have some world rulers. They have some local rulers. They've got politicians and world leaders and congressional leaders and government officials. They've got King Herod, not a believer, not one who's trying to uphold the the precepts of the word of God, but doing what seems right in their own eyes and ultimately loving to harass the church, turning up the pressure, persecuting, wanting to incite fear in the church to flatten them out, pull their shells up and just escape from all that is all that is their opportunity to be light in this world. Right? That's what the world wants to do. And they have prisons and soldiers. They've got a lot of people who are loyal to the command of the earthly king, chains, walls. It can look like an intimidating force. That's the side of Satan. That's our true adversary. But on the other side, we have the church. We have Christians. And what does the church have? We've already seen the church has each other. They have the fellowship of the brethren. We have the spiritual house that we comprise as the body of believers. The church. The church that Jesus says, even the very plans that get conjured up at the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Right? Victory is what Jesus promises for his church. We have the word of God. We have the sword of the spirit, that which not only is a lamp unto our feet and guides us into all truth, that which is able to rightly divide between thoughts and intents of the heart, joint and marrow, soul and spirit. We have the word of God. 
And it's a seed, and it's instrumental, and it's a sword. It's able to break down and chop down and cut down arguments that exalt itself against the knowledge of the Lord. We have the Word. We have the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in every single Christian. His power dwells in us. The power to move mountains, the power to change hearts, the power to break chains. And then we have prayer. We have access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have the Lord's ear. He promises that he is our forerunner and we can enter in through him, making our prayers and supplications known. We have access to the one who has already been given all victory. All victory has been given to the Lord Jesus as he's exalted to the highest name above all names, the very right hand of God where he sits in victory. And what has the power to overcome the world? Our faith, because Jesus already has. So we're seeing all this, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not fleshy in a physical world, but they're mighty in God for the ripping down of strongholds, for the casting down of arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, but they have to be used. The church has to armor up. The church has to posture themselves in the way that God says it's going to be personified. That's what he's given us. And so church, we need to match the intensity of the battle around us. The pressure on the outside has no impact if it matches the pressure on the inside. Our enemy, he uses his power well. Looking at this example alone, Herod is wielding the power of this world. He's assigned 16 soldiers to watch over Peter. But what does the church do? Does the church say, well, I guess it's over. There's no escaping. It looks physically impossible. What is the church? The church starts praying constantly saying, God, you are able. We need you to intervene. Please deliver Peter. Please reach out your righteous right hand and open prison doors. Break chains. God, you've done it before. You're able to do it again. Your will be done, not our wills, not Herod's will. And they start praying. And what does God do? Verse six says, and when Herod was about to bring him out, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So what does Herod do here? Or what does God do here? God answers prayer. God is going to send his angel to Peter. Now imagine this angel, I mean, standing at the ready, ministering at the throne of God, but a ministering spirit sent to minister to those like us who will inherit salvation. 
And the angel's just waiting. Hey, maybe my number's going to come. Maybe God wants to use me. And, and God the Father says, you, unnamed angel, go, right? He probably has a name. We don't know. We aren't told. But, but God says, go. And this angel's like, yes, finally I have my assignment. And maybe he's traveling. He's thinking, this is going to be epic. I can't wait till Peter sees what God has done as he answers prayer on his behalf. And, and he's thinking, I'm going to show up. It's going to be this grand entrance. And just like verse 7 says, he allows his whole light to illuminate this prison cell. Only Peter misses the whole thing because he's sleeping. Notice this, it's the night before he's going to be taken in front of Herod, before the people, and killed, right? It's the last day of unleavened bread, right? Peter's not just tossing and turning, sleeping. He is out cold. He's sawing logs, even though he's chained to each, to each of these Roman soldiers. Both of his arms are chained. Now, I don't know about you. My wife can attest, but if there's a single light that gets flipped on at some point in my house in the middle, I'm like, what's going on? I'm awake. But not Peter, this supernatural angelic light doesn't wake him up. The angel has to give him a little nudge, you know, a little, it strikes him on the side. But has to wake him up, right? It's crazy. It's comical, but it's crazy. He has to wake Peter up. He's so out of it. It's going to be like us mission team members when we wake our kids up at 3.30 coming this Friday. You're going to say, get up. You're going to have to love tap him on the side. You're saying, no, no, get up. And they're like, what am I doing? I have to go to the bathroom. They walk into the closet. You're like, don't go in there. That's not the bathroom. Put your shoes on. They got their shoes on their hands. Why are your shoes on your hands? Your shoes go on your feet. Get dressed. We got to go. And they're like, they don't know which way is up or down. They don't know what's going on. And that's Peter. It doesn't know. How do you sleep so hard chained to, to Roman soldiers? Unless the one who has such a hope and a trust that even if this life ends, this life is not all there is. To be absent from the body is be in the presence of the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter really believes that or he wouldn't be sleeping so hard in a prison facing his own death the next day. We've already talked about how orthodox Peter is. He has been counting the days of unleavened bread. He knows they're up. Yet he sleeps, he rests in the arms of his heavenly father because he knows God is able to keep what he's entrusted him until that day. So he sleeps and this angel has to wake him up. And Peter, even after he gets up and he goes through this whole situation, he thinks he's having a vision. He doesn't think it's real at this point, but I want you to catch what is very, very real here. Number one, Peter has two soldiers by his side, two more soldiers that would be at the gate, perhaps another set of soldiers just outside keeping that prison, wanting to make sure he does not escape. But these soldiers, they're real. And yet we have no mention of them at all. Luke doesn't record anything about what happens, what they say. They're not sleeping but I think they see the awesome power of God manifested through this angel and they know we've got nothing for this. The, the world has nothing, no response for the power of God, right? Jesus has already won, right? No matter what it looks on this end of eternity, he's already won. And when he sends his angel, these soldiers have nothing on the power of God. These very real soldiers. Number two, notice this. The physical chains that were on Peter's wrists, they're real. And they fall right off. That's a sermon in and of itself. Jesus is really able to break anything that binds us, any chain that is shackling us. He is really able to break it. And he's able to break it like that right? Connect the prayer, connect the faithfulness, connect the will of God, but he really is able to break chains. And that's what he does. These chains just fall off Peter's wrists here. And then number three, thirdly, verse 10, this iron gate is real. 
and it opens up on its own accord because God can open a door that no man can shut. Or if God wants to close the door, he can close it so no man can shut, but he can open things on his own accord. That's what it says. We believe this to be the word of God. And that's what it says. It opened up on its own accord. God opened it up. He sets the captives free. He delivers people from bondage. He rescues those who are in need of rescue. But church, listen to this. It was an angel that shows up to Peter and and delivers him out of the prison. But it was the church that first showed up to pray to have the angel even sent in the first place. Prayer is powerful, more than I can even even define or articulate it for you this morning. Prayer is powerful. God longs to hear the prayers of his people. God longs to answer the prayers of his people. If we could just comprehend even, even a small percentage of the amount of power God has wrapped up for us at our disposal through prayer, it would change our prayer lives instantaneously. And I want us to see that through the text this morning, despite all the carnal, fleshly, worldly weapons that have been keeping Peter in prison, none of them pose a problem for God. None of those things pose a problem for God and his church that engages with his plan through prayer. God does all this and everything is amazing. Peter is going to say in verse 11, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. God has, has used this whole situation, which was meant for evil, and he's used it to show his power on behalf of all those who love him. So as we move forward here, verse 12 says, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So here we see Peter. We see he's finally fully waking up here in verse 12, and he's taking some time to consider what has just happened. I picture Peter's like, wow, this, this really was real. I really am outside of the prison. How, how amazing this is. And then he thinks, I probably shouldn't be just standing here in the street, right? Because these 16 soldiers who have been charged to guard me, watch me, they're now going to face the same charge, the same penalty that I have been faced if they can't find me. Right, if a Roman soldier is commissioned to watch over a prisoner who's deserving of death and they lose him because he escapes, they're the ones who are going to die. They're going to face his same penalty. So they're literally going to start looking for Peter as if their life depended on it because it does. So Peter's like, oh, I actually probably can't stay here. And so with urgency, he goes to the house of Mary. This is John Mark's mother. And this is where many in the church are still praying. They haven't only matched the intensity on the inside, they're surpassing it as they pray without ceasing. 
But Peter starts knocking on the door, and I picture Peter knocking, he's looking over his shoulder, like the Roman soldiers are coming, knock, 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 knock. And then here comes Rhoda, and I picture Peter going, oh, I love Rhoda, but not Rhoda. Why, why did Rhoda come to the door? And Rhoda says, who is it? And he says, it's Peter. And she goes, it's Peter? No way. She's so glad she runs back into the prayer meeting without opening the gate. Peter's like, Rhoda, no, 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 not Rhoda. Send someone other than Rhoda. But check this out. Rhoda goes to the prayer meeting and says, Peter's at the gate. And these faithful Christians, right, they're just like us. They're praying without ceasing, but they're kind of going, I don't know if God's really going to do it. So Rhoda says, Peter's at the gate. They've got two explanations for him. Um, you're crazy, right? Rhoda, you're outside your mind. You're beside yourself. That's a possibility to them. Right? This, these faithful Christians who are praying. Oh, we love them, right? We can relate to them. Or number two, oh, it's just his angel, right? It's not really him, they say. And God is up there thinking, oh, if only I wouldn't have departed the angel from Peter so soon. The hardest part wasn't getting him out of prison. It was getting him in the prayer meeting. <laughs> Think about that, right? But Peter keeps knocking. Eventually, they come and open the door, and they're overjoyed that Peter is here. So much so, they're screaming with excitement, with joy, that Peter's like, shh, quiet. There's the Roman soldiers going to be looking for me. And Peter doesn't stay here long. He makes his words few as he testifies what the Lord God has done. And I think it's for their benefit. He says that God has delivered me out of prison. And they all know that would have been an answer to their prayer. And he says, go tell James. Now, this isn't the James who has been martyred for his faith. This is the James who's the leader in Jerusalem. But Peter's then going to depart this place. And this is the last event we have from Peter in the book of Acts. We're going to see him again, but it won't be recorded. The narrative's not going to follow him. It's going to shift over to Saul. But 18 says, as soon as it was light, there was no small stir among the soldiers, but they couldn't find Peter. And because they couldn't find Peter, when Herod sees what has happened, he's going to command that they all be put to death. Verse 20 says, now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Luke closes this out. And, and I think this is, is a, a great picture for us here. He tells us what becomes of, of Herod Agrippa. What becomes of the one who takes a stance against God? What becomes of the one who makes it their life's aim to persecute and afflict and try and flatten out the church, right? It's a picture here of King Agrippa. He goes to Tyre and Sidon on a public relations campaign. They've been angry with him, but they're trying to make things right because he's been supplying food for them because remember, this is time of the famine. But Herod goes down there, he's going to sit on a throne, and he's going to give a speech to the people. And the historian Josephus records a little bit more information for this. Luke tells us he was wearing royal apparel. Josephus tells us that he was wearing an outer robe that was stitched entirely of silver thread. So he's kind of into himself, right? He likes that. And he goes here to give the speech in the early morning about the time the sun rises and the sun's rays hit his silver robe. And as he starts speaking simultaneously, he starts shining. 
He's like glowing in illumination kind of capacity. And the people of Tyre and Sidon, maybe wanting to get in his good graces, are saying the voice of God, not of a man. And we can see here in verse 22, it says they kept shouting. They didn't say it once. It is in God's grace. They kept shouting because the first time Herod has an opportunity to say, no, 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 no. I don't have, I'm not the voice of God. I, I, don't get to, I don't get to take that glory from him. God is God. Remember how Peter would do or, or Paul's going to do when someone would fall down and worship him. He'd say, no, no, don't worship me. I'm just a man like you. But Herod doesn't. He allows them to keep shouting because he wants that glory. He likes that. And while he's in the middle of this speech, Josephus records that a severe pain arises in his belly and it began what is a violent, gruesome, you're not going to want to eat lunch kind of death. I'll spare you the details, but God brings judgment on this persecutor of the church. And, and after this, verse 24, the word of God grew. And Barnabas and Saul returned back from Jerusalem to Antioch. And they're going to continue their ministry there. But the people stand under pressure. They withstand this, this next wave of persecution. But I want us to come back as we close out our time this morning and come back talking about what, is it, what does it mean to stand under pressure? Friends, church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to see from the text here, from our entire study of the book of Acts, standing under pressure, standing sometimes what feels like we're alone as, as the world is turning its attention and affliction and its, its name calling towards Christians. Listen, this is not the first time that this has happened in the church. Right in 2019, it's not like we're the only Christians who've ever had to stand under pressure. In fact, quite the opposite. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. The church and Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus have a long history of having to stand for him against the wave that is this world. We've seen it now for the second major time in the book of Acts. This is first century, right? And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. That's how it's going. So we're looking at this saying, I want to apply this. I want to see this in my own life, which means the trials, the difficulties, the temptations, the ridicule, the persecution, the pressure that I face. It's not just unique to me. I'm not alone. In fact, every single Christian is experiencing something similar today. That's what Paul says. Paul says there's nothing that's common to man. First Corinthians 10, 13 he says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. But I love this and I want to point it out because this is how he feels. And I say, oh, nobody knows the pressure I'm going through. Nobody knows what I'm dealing with. Nobody knows I'm all alone. And the Lord is saying through the Holy Spirit and Paul saying, chill out. You're not alone. In fact, a bunch of people go through the same thing you're going through. Quit isolating yourself. Quit thinking that I'm all alone and nobody can help me carry this burden. No one can help bear my burden and so fulfill the law of Christ when that's exactly what he's told the church to do. Stop isolating yourself. When the famine comes, the church doesn't isolate themselves. The church comes together and is the body. And through their love for Christ, their love for one another, their generosity makes the scarcity not so scarce. That's how the church can turn up the pressure on the inside by not letting this world separate and divide them from one another. Come together, be the body. There's nothing different. We all experience this thing, but instead of putting our focus on the trial, I love the last part. God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. You can stand because when you are tempted, he will show you a way that you can endure. 
Paul's turning the focus here to say, put your focus on the God who is faithful. Put the pressure or, or put the focus not on the external pressure, but the internal pressure of God is able to make us stand. God is able to give us the strength and the supply of his spirit so we can stand. We can stand in the power of his might. We can be armored up and stand in this battle. We just need to turn the pressure up on the inside. So the question becomes, how's your prayer life, Christians? How's your devotion life? Christians? How's your fellowship time? Are you connecting with other believers in Christ and having them pray for you and you pray for them? Are you on an island? And that's maybe the reason why the, the, the temptation seems so great, why the pressure on the outside seems so severe. That's not what we're seeing here. We're seeing the church be the church. We're seeing prayer partners. Pray with spouses. Pray with your kids. If you're single, find a brother or a sister to pray with. Engage in the battle, engage in prayer, and don't put the focus on the trial. I want to come back to this Mariana Trench example that we opened up with. I want you to know God wants to take you all deeper. Do you understand that? He has a love that is immeasurable. There's no depth that is too deep. Really, it's, it's bottomless because it's so full. Not in a falling, I'm never going to stop falling, but it's, there's a depth that we can't even fathom that I don't think we'll ever even reach on this end of eternity. But oh, the joy it is to pursue. But he wants to take you deeper. He wants to take you deeper. Trials are deep calling out to deep. It's God saying, I want to show you more. It's God saying, I want to teach you more about me. It's God saying, I want to grow your dependence upon me. If you'll be weak enough, I'll show you just how strong I am but it's going deeper. And as we go deeper, the pressure gets greater. We've got to turn up the pressure on the inside so we can go to the depths that God has for us, right? That's the way Christianity works. We love the heights. We're like, oh no, take me higher, God. And he says, I want to take you deeper. I want it to be richer and fuller. I want your roots to grow deeper in me, but there's going to be pressure but don't allow that external pressure to be greater than the internal pressure. Don't think that I just got to have thick skin. Think I need to have a well-worn path to the throne of grace. I need more Jesus. And anything that's going to be in my life to help me get more Jesus, I want more of that. I don't want less fellowship. I want more. I don't want less Bible. I want more. I don't want less worship. I want more. I want more. And I think this room is full of most people who want more. So you've got to press in. He has more for you exceedingly and abundantly more than you can ever ask or imagine, which means if you can imagine more, he has more than you can even imagine. So let's press into that. Let's ask the Lord to do that. Let's apply this to our lives. Let's stand under pressure with the one who has stood with us and for us and will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen.